Welcome to the Six Figure Developer Podcast, the podcast where we talk about new and exciting technologies, professional development, clean code, career advancement, and more. I am John Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash. With us today is Dr. Jeff Sutherland. After 11 years in the military, he became a doctor at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. Sutherland contributed to the creation of the Agile Manifesto in 2001. Along with Ken Schwaber, he wrote and maintains the Scrum Guide, which contains the official definitions of the framework. Welcome, Jeff. Glad to be here. So um, before we sort of jump into the meat of things, would you give our listeners a little introduction to yourself? Uh, maybe tell them how you got started in the industry? Well, I got started in the industry actually back in 1983. I was a professor at the medical school doing supercomputer modeling of the human cell. And, and we were using technologies that were used by the banks. And a large banking company came by that was running 150 banks all over North America. And they said, you know, Jeff, you, you guys have all the knowledge at the university, but we have all the money. And they made me an offer that my wife could refuse. So I wind up at the bank. <laughs> they called me vice president for advanced systems. But basically, I was CTO of 150 banks. The first thing I realized, I mean, I was working mainly on the, the technical strategy. But as I was watching what was going on, they had all these huge projects with hundreds of developers on them, and they were all late. <laughs> and every time they would get late, the managers would have more meetings, more reports, and <laughs> they got later. <laughs> so I went into the CEO, yeah. and I said, you know, have you noticed all your projects are late? And he said, yeah, every morning, at least four or five CIOs of the banks call me up, and they scream at me. And I said, it's not getting worse. We need to fix this. And when he asked me what to do, I said, well, at the university, I've been working at Bell Labs with some of their really high-performing teams. We know, we know how to fix this. We can't fix the whole bank at once, but we need, to take, we need to take a business unit. Let's take the worst business unit, the one that's losing the most money. Let's break them into small teams, uh, five or six people. Uh, let's, uh, let's have product marketing come in on Monday morning, give them a backlog that's ordered by priority and business value and and then lets them deliver every Friday afternoon if it's a hundred if it's going to the banks and software they're live on Friday afternoon with with whatever is worked on that week I said to do that I need everybody I need sales mark anybody that touches the system sales marketing support installation any software guys it's going to be one company small teams delivering every week and he said well he says it's not going to be a lot of fun <laughs> like the like working <laughs> I said, Look, the bag needs to be fixed. So he said, okay, you got it. And that was the beginning of what today we called Scrum at Scale. And it took a prototype. It took 10 years of tuning up that prototype until in 1993, we formalized it as Scrum in a company called Easel Corporation in Burlington, Massachusetts. So Scrum has a really long history. It seems like a lot of software teams have adopted Scrum as the way to be agile. Is that rooted in that history? What are the reasons that you think teams might gravitate towards Scrum? 
Well, in the early days at Easel, of course, we were building software products. So uh, as we formalized Scrum, it was designed for software teams. And then as I got Ken Schwaber involved in a, to take a look at it, Ken was the CEO of a project management company that sold traditional waterfall methodologies. And I, I brought Ken in. I said, look, Ken, I want you to look at Scrum because it actually works. And that that traditional project management you're talk, that you're selling doesn't work. You should sell Scrum. <laughs> and so, you know, I was running a software company or part of a software company. Ken was running a software company. And so as we got together and formalized it for the market, it was directed towards software developers. You know, it was some years before the Agile Manifesto was written, 2001. Of course, Scrum started in 1993. Ken and I formalized it for the industry in 95. And we had six years of rolling it out before the Agile Manifesto meeting. But at that time, uh, when Ken and I decided to formalize Scrum, Scrum had in it all the engineering practices that became known as extreme programming. Kent Beck, the founder of Extreme Programming, was asking me for everything on Scrum. He was telling us he was building a process. He didn't want to reinvent anything. And so we decided to let Kent take the engineering practices and software, and Scrum would focus on the team process itself. And so during, those, during that time, I think Kent published his first book around 1997. During that time, Kent was rolling out Extreme Programming, we were rolling out Scrum, and so we got together in the Agile Manifesto meeting. These were the only two processes that were actually widely deployed with hundreds of teams. Extreme programming, I think, had thousands of teams at the time, many more than Scrum. They were the, they were the biggest process in 2001. What happened, though, after the Agile Manifesto meeting is that Scrum is really useful if you have a lot of teams. It's It scales. <laughs> <laughs> and so as Agile started to become a big thing, you know, Scrum started to explode. And it's, it's extremely effective if it's done well. You know, I had been in a, in a bunch of startups. I was brought in to actually start up a new entrepreneurial effort within a larger company when we built Scrum. So I knew that unless you could have a product that was 10 times better than the current products on the market, you, it's very hard to get adoption in a venture. You have to, you have, to have radical improvement. And so we worked with the, I, I took all the years that I had spent at least 10 years prototyping this. We brought in the leading productivity company in the business at the time, led by Capers Jones, Software Productivity Research. We used their tools and technologies to benchmark what we were doing and only when software productivity research says their tooling said this is 10 times faster, <laughs> we said, okay, now it's ready for real time. Okay. So that means that, uh, you know, our book, the, the book where we wrote down most of the scrum the out of doing twice the work and half the time. Well, twice the work and half the time is only four times better, right? So this is conservative. <laughs> People that do it well, I mean, my, the head of the venture firm that I work with has a little blurb in the book. He says, if you're not getting three times the work and a third the time, you're not doing Scrum right. 
So what does a high-performing Scrum team look like? Are there things that we can look to that we can make sure that we're following policies, processes, procedures, or is it something different than that? Absolutely. You know, when I was in the medical school, I was working with a team at Bell Labs using tools and technologies. It was a team of about five people. Kernigan and Ritchie were members of the team, the inventor of the C language and the inventor of Unix. And what they taught me is that they had eliminated all job titles. They were only member of technical staff because they said, if you have specialized job titles, that slows teams down. We found out later there was 10 years of research at Bell Labs on productivity of teams all over the world. And the major thing that slowed teams down was specialized job titles. So they have massive amounts of research to, to prove that. And so the optimal size of teams is really, Harvard's done a lot of research on this, is really four or five people. Mm-hmm. So your team needs to be small. I'm, I'm on a team of six myself. My company runs totally Scrum. And even when you get six, it slows down a little bit from five. When you get seven, it slows down more. When you get eight, it's really hard in a daily meeting to get everybody to have a, a chance to talk. So the team needs to be small. Second, they need to really understand what they're doing. They need to have a plan (laughs) and they need to be committed as a team to execute on that plan. And so uh, we spent many years writing books on patterns. The most important patterns that you see in a team for high performance is a pattern, what we call ready backlog. The things that need to be done are small, they're clear, the team understands it. And if you if you get that backlog in good shape, the team will automatically double speed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We have extensive research showing showing that phenomenon. Okay. So the team needs to be small. We there's extensive data showing that if a team of six takes uh, a year to do a project. And you add four people to the team, so you have a team of 10, they will take a year and a half. So my stand-up this morning with 17 people, not not good? Yeah, so that means they're going to be really, really slow. <laughs> and it's going to be really painful because those meetings tend to degenerate into problem solving for a small, you know, for a few people in those 17. And the, most of the rest of the people are not interested. <laughs> so... The meeting tends to go on forever. <laughs> or, the, or they become useless, right? Because that, at a minimum, into three teams. Yeah. Now, as soon as you do that, you're going to have to deal with uh, coordinating across teams. But you will immediately get start getting more done, like right away in the first sprint, if you have three teams. Does the team include everybody that's involved from concept to delivery? Anybody that has to talk in a daily meeting. Okay. The idea, well, in, in Scrum at Scale, which is uh, the leadership in Intel came to me at one point and said, we tried these scaling frameworks and the productivity per team slows down as you add more teams. Mm-hmm. That's a problem for us. <laughs> you need to write down how to do this. So when you add more teams, it, you know, if you double the teams, you double the production. So I wrote how, down how to do that. It's called Scrum at Scale. And we have a guide for that, just like for Scrum. And so those three teams need to run like a scrum at scale. But this is one of the things that has really differentiated scrum from many other practices. It's designed to scale 
if you set it up right, it's small teams formed into a network with nodes and the network can grow as big as you want. And in fact, pretty much the internet is run by scrum teams, right? And there's, there's no limit to the number of teams. So earlier you had said that Scrum in 1993 contained pretty much all of the XP practices. But when Kent Beck was putting together XP, you said, okay, we'll let you have the the dev practices and we'll do everything else and that'll be Scrum. So several years later, now in 2021, if Scrum was originally all of the uh, business management requirements gathering and all that stuff, and the XP practices, should it still be something akin to that? If it's software, yes. The highest performing teams have all always been Scrum with extreme programming inside. Because everything in stream programming, you really need to have software practices that really work. If you don't have continuous integration, uh, it's a mess. If you don't have automated testing, uh, today you're in big trouble. You know, Amazon has, the last time I was at Amazon coaching the management, they had 3,300 Scrum teams delivering a new feature more than once a second live. To do that, you have to have really good engineering practices. So what do companies get right? And for that matter, what do companies get wrong? Because it seems like a lot of organizations say, okay, we have a daily stand-up, so we're Scrum. Or <laughs> we, we have a backlog, so we're Scrum. Yeah, they say, well... Yeah, we do Scrum, but it's really sort of Scrumish. And I said, well, "What is what is Scrumish?" They said, "We have a daily meeting, but not much else." Yeah. <laughs> a daily meeting is not going to make Amazon deliver a new feature more than once a second, right? <laughs> you need really good engineering practices. You really need the team really collaborating together. You know, so in in addition to the team being small and having a a real clear backlog and objective, they need to be collaborating together. There, there needs to be more than one person working on a story uh, to make it go really fast. And so if every team has, has, if a team has seven different specialists and they only work on their own stuff, they're going to be really, really slow. <laughs> so they need to be swarming together. Somebody told me, uh, a while back in France that Google isn't doing Scrum anymore. I said, oh, what are they doing? They said, well, they, they sit around a table, they have their backlog on sticky notes on the wall, and as soon as someone's free, they go to the top item in the backlog. If they don't know how to do it, they learn it. So that means everybody has to know everything. Everybody's a full stack developer. And if there's an impediment, that goes at the top of the list. <laughs> so that's the first thing that's worked on, right? And they all sit around a table, talk to one another all day. It's like one big daily meeting. I said, well, maybe they're not calling it Scrum, but that's going to be a really fast team because it's small. The backlog's clear. They're focused. Everybody's collaborating constantly to try to get stuff done. And they help one another out if they, you know, if they, if they have trouble. And if there's a problem, that goes to the top of the list. They work on that immediately. The team just refocuses on that and, and gets it out of the way so they can go faster. It's more than a daily meeting. <laughs> I, I should say, when we implemented the, t the first Scrum team, we started to call it Scrum. We had sprints. 
we had a product owner, we had a backlog. The very first sprint, we didn't have a daily meeting. But during the second sprint, we read a paper that Bell Labs had written after they had audited the fastest team that's ever been documented. It was a team at Borland. That team ran, went, delivered a thousand lines of production C++ code per week per developer. And we had good data on Microsoft where it took a developer a year to deliver a thousand lines of C++ per developer. So this team was 50 times faster. And we did a detailed analysis of, okay, what is it? And we decided the only thing that they're doing that we're not doing is the daily meeting. Hmm. In the very second sprint, we implemented the daily meeting. But then we quickly, you know, we didn't really increase quickly. So we said, we must not be doing it right. You know, we should get an immediate dramatic improvement if, it, if it's working. And so we started watching, we, the team like rugby videos. And there was, there's this rugby video of the All Blacks New Zealand team that Adidas made. And so we started playing that video over and over and say, okay, what are these guys doing in rugby that we're not doing as a software team? And that started to change the tone of the meeting. All of a sudden, somebody would say, I was working on this and I'm not done. And somebody else would say, why? And uh, Well, I got stuck here. And somebody else would say, well, I can jump in. We can work together and get that fixed within an hour. So instead of taking a week, it's going to get done within the hour, fully tested. And then the team would get this really dynamic discussion of who is going to do what, how it's going to happen, how they're going to work together. We came into the third sprint and they... They took what we call yesterday's weather, the amount of work they did in the second sprint, into the third sprint. Our sprints were a month long, and they were done with everything on day four. So they went over five times faster immediately because of the daily meeting. So that, so that is the power of a daily meeting, but it only works <laughs> when the team is really small it's really intense and <laughs> people are working together like a rugby team, right? Yeah, it can't just be a can't just be a status report. Right, right. The status report is the death of a team. It's really deadly. That kind of leads us into 2020, 2021. A lot of companies went remote. They they really needed to figure out a way to continue to be productive and not lose as much productivity by not being in the office. Uh, a lot of organizations thrived. A lot of organizations suffered. Um, a lot of organizations have in the past and during that situation attempted agile transformations. Do you have any knowledge or, or any insight into how many of these companies, how many of these organizations were successful in an agile transformation or how many struggled? The, the latest surveys show that 53% of Agile transformations do not meet the expectations of the management. And the MIT Business School has done an analysis of those and found that 67% of those that don't meet expectations, the company goes out of business. They either go bankrupt or they get acquired. So yeah, there's a lot of failure. There's two major reasons for that. One of them is the scrum itself because the industry data also shows while Scrum is much more successful than traditional project management, the failure rate is very high. 50% of Scrum teams can't deliver on it. They, they're late, they're over budget. And this is Agile teams in general, which the survey show about 77% of them are Scrum. So Agile is mostly Scrum. 
But agile teams, 50% of them are late over budget. They're agile in name only. And 8% of them fail to deliver anything. So there's a 58% failure rate of scrum teams. So it's not surprising that there would be a 53% failure rate of agile transformations, right? In addition to the scrum problem, in in an agile transformation, you have a leadership problem. And and Professor Carter, who's the uh, change expert at Harvard, written many, many books. Uh, In his book, uh, Accelerate, he goes through the agile transformation business, and he said he's never seen a long-term successful agile transformation with waterfall traditional leadership leading the agile piece of the company. So if you if you don't have agile management, the failure rate's a hundred percent. So you know these two things: bad scrum and the lack of agile management cause a very high failure rate, particularly during COVID. You know, in 2019, it used to be nice to be agile. <laughs> 2020, <laughs> if you weren't agile, you're you're likely to go bankrupt. Yeah, yeah in 2020. The stock price of agile companies that are that are really good at this, the stock prices are going to the moon. I mean, obviously, Amazon stock price is going to the sky, right? I mean, COVID was a bonanza for Amazon, but most people don't know that one of the biggest agricultural hardware companies building tractors in the world, their stock price went up more than Amazon because <laughs> they were implementing Scrum at scale. <laughs> And they knew how to do this. One of the most amazing things about Scrum, I could never have anticipated this, but in in 2007, we wrote the first paper that showed you could have a globally distributed set of Scrum teams. Uh, This paper, we had half of them in Russia, the other half in Canada and the United States. And when you double the number of teams, production more than doubled. We had super linear scaling. And in that paper, every team had half of the people in the United States and half in Russia. So every team was remote. And what that showed us is that if you do Scrum well, remote doesn't matter. So again, this is one of the reasons that COVID has been a bonanza because all of a sudden, I mean, I got a call from one of the biggest uh, biotech companies in the world. The senior manager said, Jeff, thank God we went scrum six months before the COVID lockdown because, you know, within a week we're operating remotely just like we were before lockdown. And our competition, they're dead in the water and they are not going to recover until COVID is over. And he said, not only that, when it's over, it's going to take them a year or two to dig out of the hole that COVID created for them. COVID has been a huge accelerator of agile companies and people are are making a ton of money off it. Some of our scrum trainers that are smart enough to invest in agile companies. Let's put a little bit of your 401k in some of these agile companies and let's see 10X, 20X, 30X in your 401k. (laughs) That's what some of them have done. One of the things you mentioned about really needing to have in order to to have the successful transformation was agile management. And that, that is something, it's a terminology and a concept I, I'm not entirely familiar with. Could you unpack that a little bit further? Okay, so let's, uh, let's take one of the examples that I can talk about freely. Uh, 3M is a company that uh, has been very successful over the years. And 
because of their background in hardware and lean, they they were really receptive to Scrum. And so we've done multiple divisions. In 3M, we take it division by division because their divisions do quite different things. You know, the, the division that makes sticky notes is a lot different than the division that's doing healthcare and so forth. One example, we go into the traffic safety division. They're building smart roads. And their problem was 3M had a product development lifecycle document where it took two years to build a new product. But their competition was coming out with two new products every quarter. So the traffic and safety division's revenue stream was declining. They, you know, they were, they were losing business. And at 3M, that's a real problem because they, start, they sell divisions that start losing revenue. They don't keep them around. So they had to do something. So they said, okay, they were not the first division we took, but I think they were maybe the second. So we said, okay, what we need to do is we need to start with the leadership and we need a leadership team that's running as a scrum. So we need to train you in scrum. You need to do scrum and your backlog is to set up the organization so that when we bring on the engineering teams, they are, they are ready to run. And one of the first things you need to do is completely rewrite this two-year project management lifecycle document, right? <laughs> and change it so that you can deliver something every sprint. And they do one-week sprints, which we recommend at 3M. And sure enough, by starting with the management initially, then when we rolled it out to the engineering teams, in the first quarter, they delivered two new products, just like the competition. But the manager was trained. So you need not only buy-in, you actually need engagement of the management to really make this work well. So what, what advice can you give to people who maybe are the developers down in the team level, or maybe they're a part of an organization who hasn't maybe fully bought into, or there, there's still people out there that aren't into Agile, they're not into Scrum, and the team is looking at, hey, we would like to try to make a difference, but we only are empowered so much, right? Uh, do they just say, well, it's not, there's no chance, there's no hope, or what, what, what do you say to those folks who are in that situation? So in the early days, Scrum always started in the grassroots. So this is, this was for everyone, right? In training people in Scrum, we're always training at the grassroots level, and they're constantly complaining about this. This is maybe the number one complaint. Okay. <laughs> so what I had, what I've done for them is, well, first of all, I helped the Scrum masters understand how to make a case to management. Hmm. You know, you really need to be able to negotiate with the management. Like, you come into the management, you say, you know, we're doing pretty well, but we could go twice as fast. Would you like to have that? And the management will always say yes, right? <laughs> they say, well, <laughs> you want that. <laughs> this is what we need from you to enable that to happen. And then, of course, they'll say, oh, wow, we can't possibly do that. You know, that's not the way we work around here. And then the, then the scrum master says, well, we're just going to stay as slow as we are then until you're ready to help. And so you keep working the, you keep working the management until they bust loose. But today we have a class for them specifically I've created and it's a class on Scrum at Scale. And that is a class where, in the class, we have nothing but Agile leaders, executives, lead Agile coaches. And we spent two days talking about how do you run an organization with Scrum? So today I'm telling the Scrum Masters, the number one thing you can do is get your manager to come to this class because then they're gonna be surrounded by their peers 
they're going to be evaluating their company against their peers, and they're going to learn what they need to do to help you be successful as a developer. That's about, you know, that's about the best we can do for them is to create a special <laughs> course. If we can't get the advantage of that car course, then maybe they should work go to work for a more agile company, right? Yeah, yeah. We had a team. We had a group, a group in Japan, uh, not Japan, but in Germany. <laughs> I was at a conference there talking about this, and 15 people in a company in Berlin walked out of work the next day. <laughs> down the street and sold their entire teams. There were two or three teams. They sold their entire two or three teams to a startup. Wow. Because they, they realized the company they were in, the management was not, wasn't going to do what needed to be done, so it didn't make any sense to stay there one more day. So it's either get your management in the Scrum and Skill course or <laughs> take your team down the street because there's lots of, there's lots of companies doing Scrum today. You sort of mentioned a little bit there, um, but what resources might you point people to for our listeners who maybe are trying to get started in Scrum, maybe, or they're just trying to improve their teams in general? We have people from many different companies, including Apple, regularly in our classes. And in one of the classes, uh, a former Apple employee said, Jeff, do you know why Apple always meets its dates? And I said, no, why, how come? How do they always meet their dates? And she said, they do Scrum by the book. And I said, what book? She said, the red book. <laughs> now, Apple is the most valuable company in the world. <laughs> and one of the major reasons is that because they do Scrum by this book. So I, I would strongly recommend you start there. And in the book, it will talk about not only what Scrum, what Scrum is and how it works, but it will talk about the way teams need to work together to be high performing. And to do that, there's a set of patterns that you need to see within the teams. Uh, I spent 10 years with the Scrum Patterns Group writing a book with Jim Copeland on patterns that help Scrum teams work better. And there's a small set of patterns that we call the high productive patterns. They're the ones that make teams really fast. And so people need to learn those if they really want to do it well. A, guy, a CEO in Kenya doing uh, green energy startups in Kenya picked up that book. And he got his teams doing Scrum. And he, he came to New York. He was a... I think a Ford Foundation fellow or something. So he was in New York and he came into one of my classes I was running in New York. He said, he, he brought a set of slides showing how his teams are all doing three times the work at a third of the time. He had no training. All he did was he read the book. So people can start up from that book. They can start up and run a company never even having heard about Scrum before. What has been helpful in your career that you might share with those just getting started or those looking to level up their own careers? Well, I had the good fortune to have a lot of really good mentors. I sought them out. I was very fortunate to start off as a cadet at West Point in the military. And in the very first year there, I went out for the gymnastics team because the Olympic team was our coach. The coach was the Olympic coach. All the assistant coaches were members of the Olympic team. And so for years at West Point, three hours every day, including weekends, 
I had an Olympic coach training me to do better every day. And I learned the discipline. And that was tremendously valuable. And in, in the last year I was there, I wanted to build a championship team my own. And I had the opportunity to build a, t a ski team, uh, which became the champion ski team at West Point. And simultaneously, I was in, in my company in West Point, I was given the role as training officer, and I, I trained the cadets how to do these formal parades on the, on, the playing, on the field where all the generals are there, the tourists. Three times a week, they'd have them. And my company, L2, was, was known as the Loose Deuce because they, were the, they had been the sloppiest company on the parade field for 100 years. The culture of mediocrity was embedded. And I, I tried every strategy that any manager has ever thought of that none of them worked until I started putting color-coded notes on the bulletin board wall. You know, as they were marching back from the parade, I'd have, I'd, I'd met with all the other trading officers. We had the data and every, every company was scored. I put a backlog of things they needed to fix to do better in the next parade. And I said nothing. It was like a sticky note backlog on the wall of things that needed to be improved. And within three months, that company self-organized into the best marching company probably that West Point has ever seen. They were selected to, bury, to march behind the casket of our most famous graduate, General MacArthur, because of that. And that taught me about making work visible, the whole sticky note thing, self-organization. What, what is it that causes a team, without being told what to do, to self-organize into greatness? Okay, that, I learned all that at West Point. And it was because of the great leadership there that helped, helped, uh, helped me understand what needed to be done. And then when I went out into the Air Force, I was trained as a fighter pilot in uh, Colonel John Boyd's strategy. He's the greatest fighter pilot ever. And his strategy has now been taught in all the work colleges and is, is, is the fundamental way the U.S. Marine works. And I was in Tokyo, uh, Tokyo a couple of years ago meeting with Professor Nanaka, who actually came up with the term scrum. He wrote a paper in 1986 in Harvard Business Review. They were looking at the best teams all over the world. It's called the New New Product Development Game. He said the best teams are working so closely together and delivering things in short sprints. He says they remind us of the game of rugby. So we're going to call this scrum project management after the scrummage formation in rugby. Well, today, Nanaka is writing a book on the U.S. Marines. And what he tells me is that John Boyd's strategy that he taught to the Marines is more important today that to Toyota and other Japanese companies than the whole lean training with the plan, do, check, act cycle, which Scrum has in it. Wow. He says, your introduction of what's called the OODA loop into, into Scrum takes lean to the next level. And that is the key to the future success of Japanese industry. You know, I, I tell people, you know, I didn't make this up. <laughs> Great people told me what to do and I followed Awesome. In line of uh, following that, uh, where, where can our listeners go to follow you and uh, keep up with what you're working on? Well, I have a company called Scrum Inc. And uh, the, the blog at Scrum Inc., you know, all my blogs are up on Scrum Inc. 
the I've I've talked to you about the red books. I'm the author doing twice the work and half the time. But we also have a a book that really has a lot of case studies of agile transformations. So the Scrum Field Book that people might want to read that. And of course, I'm on Twitter and I'm I do a little bit on Facebook. That's the, that's where to go. I think the books and then the Scrum Inc. blog and then Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. Jeff, thanks so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate you joining us. Well, I'm glad to have the opportunity. It's great to talk to you guys. That was Dr. Jeff Sutherland. After 11 years in the military, he became a doctor at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. Sutherland contributed to the creation of the Agile Manifesto in 2001. Along with Ken Schwaber, he wrote and maintains a Scrum Guide, which contains the official definition of the framework. If you like this episode, please like, rate, and review on iTunes. Find show notes, blog posts, and more at sixfiguredev.com. Catch us live each week on Twitch and follow us on Twitter at sixfiguredev. This has been another episode of the Six Figure Developer Podcast, helping others reach our potential. I'm John Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash. Ah!